welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and I am privileged to serve as your host each week. As you know, this is now the world's largest distributed and subscribed to weekly leadership podcast. And to each of you that have promoted it in your social media and subscribed to it, not just yourself, but to your friends, your families, and colleagues, we're very grateful to you. Each week, we try our best to curate a new guest, whether it be someone inside the Franklin Covey family or perhaps someone outside that is a business titan, best-selling author, philanthropist, thought leader, celebrity with a particular point of view on how to improve your thought leadership, we try each week to outdo ourselves. And in fact, this week, we did that. Now, let me give you a bit of history. About two and a half years ago, when Franklin Covey's chairman, Bob Whitman, and I sat down and decided we wanted to create some new channels for the Franklin Covey Company. When we said channels, we thought, you know, channels like a radio program, like a TV channel, like a podcast, what do you mean? We talked back and forth, and then we decided who would we like to model this podcast after? And I'm not kidding you, simultaneously, our chairman Bob Whitman and myself said David Rubenstein. In fact, it was just exactly two and a half years ago, upstairs in the executive suite, that we said if we could create a program a podcast, an interview series that is anything close to what David Rubenstein does on Peer to Peer and on Bloomberg and on PBS, we will have hit a home run. So we've done our best at that. But today I am honored to announce that, in fact, our guest is David Rubenstein himself, who has, I think, one of the most influential leadership interview series on any channel and is now the new Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author of the book How to Lead. Wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers. David Rubenstein, welcome to On Leadership. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we, are so, we are so honored, sir. I have followed your career for the better part of 30 years. I mentioned to you off air, I've been privileged to be uh, in the Franklin Covey Company, which we think is one of the most influential leadership development firms in the world based on the legacy of our co-founders, Dr. Stephen R. Covey and Hiram Smith, both who have now passed. And we do our best each week to bring exciting, new, fresh content to all of our clients and potential clients around the world. Sometimes it's a Franklin Covey thought leader. Sometimes it's someone like yourself. And so we are delighted that you were able to uh, give us 30 to 40 minutes to discuss not just your book today, but a bit of the lessons that you've learned along your way. David, I think most of the world knows who you are. You obviously are the co-founder of the Carlyle Group. At one time, was the world's largest private equity company in the world, now still one of the largest with offices, I think, in, if not every country, most every country where it is legal. You are a renowned philanthropist. I, I can't even begin to, to calculate the deliberate and enormously generous gifts you have given to, to zoos, to the Lincoln Center, to the Smithsonian, to the, to the reconstruction of the Washington Monument. I think it's true that you purchased the last personal copy of the Magna Carta, and it's now in the hands of you know, um, uh, one of the major uh, museums in the nation. Your philanthropy is extraordinarily well-known. So on behalf of all of America, I just want to thank you for your deliberate generosity and the, the unparalleled good you are doing with the the blessed funds you've been you know, privileged to earn and steward. I first became professionally invested in you, David, about 12 years ago. I was privileged to be an attendee at the World Business Forum back at the uh, October event just prior to, I think it was, the 
presidential election between Barack Obama, then Senator Barack Obama, and Senator John McCain. And you were one of the many speakers on stage for two days in front of multiple thousands of executives, and you did something quite audacious. You came out to the center of the stage, and like I'd never seen before, you took a quick poll on a variety of a half dozen economic and political topics. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And I've been to hundreds of conferences. I'd seen thousands of speakers, but I'd never seen someone like you extemporaneously boldly say, I want to see by a show of hands. And you asked thousands of business leaders, who are you voting for, Barack Obama or John McCain? Usually a taboo thing at a business conference. But I was so fascinated at the courage and the confidence that you showed in front of that audience. And of course, you went on to give a bring the house down speech. I'd like to start with, have you always had that level of confidence and in, in, in what do you attribute your level of success to with the Carlyle Group? Well, no, I didn't have that level of confidence when I was much younger. I came from very modest means, and I wasn't from parents who had big educations, and I didn't really aspire to do that much when I was very young. But obviously, over the years, as I got more experience, I developed more self-confidence. And so today, when I go make a speech, I often do what you just saw, which is I tend to like to engage the audience by asking them questions, which gets them involved. And then I tend to like to give a speech without notes or without scripted kind of uh, 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 speech. So it's just more informal. And you know, I have more confidence in doing interviews than I did years ago, because I've been doing them for a while. Obviously, you're very experienced in it now as well. But when you first started, I imagine you probably weren't as self-confident as you are now, I assume. You know, it's just a matter of experience. And after a while, you know, those people that are, are good at it can advance and and, and, and make it seem like it's natural, but obviously it takes a lot of work, a lot of practice, and a lot of mistakes along the way. Oh, be clear, I am nervous today. I'm interviewing David Rubenstein, so I am more experienced, but I am also nervous. Uh, David, for the last few people that may not be intimately aware with your professional career and some of your philanthropy, would you take a few moments and check your humility and talk about your own career journey and what has contributed to your success and what are some of the projects you're most passionate about working on and then we'll talk about your book. Okay, so I grew up in Baltimore. Uh, my parents married very young. They weren't college or high school educated. I was their only child. I went to public schools. I did okay, but I wasn't a superstar. Certainly not a superstar athlete or, or, or great uh, bon vivant. I got a scholarship to Duke University, not a basketball scholarship. and later got a scholarship to go to University of Chicago Law School. But my goal was not to practice law or really make a lot of money. My goal was to help my country by giving back to the country through public service. I had been inspired by John Kennedy when I was very young to go into public service. I was fortunate to get a job in the White House when Jimmy Carter was elected. I did it for four years. Obviously, it didn't work out perfectly for Carter or for the country or for me. And so I had to go back after Reagan won in 1980 and practice law again. And I wasn't very good at it. And I just didn't like it. And you can't be great at anything you don't like. So I started a small private equity firm in 1987 at, in Washington, Carlisle. It grew to be, as you say, one of the largest in the world. And as a result of that, I made a fair amount of money by normal human standards, not by the standards of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, but by normal standards, a great deal of money. And I decided I was very lucky in this country that I've come from modest roots to be able to do what I did. So I decided to basically give away all my money to kind of thank the country for what had happened to me. And so I have given my three children a very good education but I'm not giving them a billion dollars a piece to kind of do whatever they want with. I've decided when Bill Gates approached me about the giving pledge to be one of the original 40 people to sign it. And I have specialized a bit in education and healthcare, but patriotic philanthropy, which you alluded to, is what I've done a lot of, which is 
fixed monuments or memorials, buy historic documents, historic books, and make them available to the public and try to remind people the importance of our history and our heritage, the good and the bad. In fact, David, I think is it true you are the original signer of the Giving Pledge that's been popularized and founded by Bill Gates and I think Warren Buffett. You are not just one of the first, you were the first, is that true? No, I wouldn't say that. Bill Gates uh, and Warren Buffett and Melinda were the, the original ones. It was their idea. Um, and I, there were 40 of us at the beginning. I don't, we, you don't have to distinguish between who signed it first or second, other than the founding partners were the three I mentioned. But there were 40 of us at the beginning. Now there are about 200 of us. And you're committed to give away half your money uh, during your lifetime or, or upon your death. And I decided I would give away all my money. You know, I've obviously um, uh, given my children education and so forth. And I, I, I have a homes and so forth, but I, I'm basically giving away my money. David, of the philanthropy you've been deliberately involved in, are there some particular projects that have been, uh, you've been most proud of, that this was money really well spent? Right, right. Well, let me preface it by saying that I don't have the money of Bill Gates or, or Warren Buffett, so I can't solve the problems they're trying to solve. The thing that made me the most proud probably was this. Um, I'm the only child of my parents, as I mentioned, and uh, my mother never really called me to say, David, you, congratulations on building Carlisle, congratulations on taking this company public, congratulations on making this amount of money. When I started giving away money in a serious way, she would call me always and thank me for it and say, you're doing something I'm proud of. And when she passed away a few years ago, I went through her uh, files and the only thing she ever kept of, of anything I had done was, was the uh, uh, stories about money I'd given away, the projects I had supported philanthropically. So that's what made me the mm. most proud is that my mother actually thought I'd done something useful with the life she gave me. Uh, in terms of specific things, obviously people tend to remember the Washington Monument fixing that or buying the Magna Carta, fixing Lincoln Memorial. I, I enjoy all these things, but the thing that people probably remember the most, at least in Washington, is I put up some money to make sure the pandas could stay here. Yeah. And so the pandas are among the most popular animals in our national zoo and maybe the most popular animals in our country. So I've done that. but. Many other things I, I try to do is remind people of our history and heritage. I own a lot of rare copies of the Declaration of Independence, all put in place so people can see them, and try to remind people uh, of the good things in, in the Declaration and some of the bad things in the Declaration, some of the good things in our Constitution and some of the bad things in our Constitution. So I really want to remind people of the, the pluses and minuses of this country with the idea that we can inspire people to make it an even better country. Well, David, I hope you feel it's appreciated. I speak on the behalf of uh, lots of viewers and listeners that your generosity and abundance is, uh, is appreciated and felt, and thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you. uh, let's transition to your book, not your first book, but your most recent book called How to Lead Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers, out just a few weeks ago. Debuted at number one in the Wall Street Journalist. Congratulations, by the way. Not every book can accomplish that. Um, you can see from the set, I know a few things about books. As um, uh, the leader right. of our book strategy at Franklin Covey, over the course of our years, we've sold close to 45 million books, so we know what it takes to make a bestseller. So congrats on doing that ethically. Uh, the Thank book you. is uh, superb. It is a collection of your interviews across your many interview platforms, and you organize them into, I think, about six different categories. Visionaries, builders, transformers, commanders, decision makers, and masters. And in a few moments, I'm going to water ski across four or five of these interviews, ask you what perhaps insights you learned. Before I do that, I'd like to ask you, I think to become um, an interviewer, you have to have a couple of things, right? You have to have credibility and you have to have access, but you also have to have trust. You have to have proven yourself to be a trustworthy person 
to get these very influential people to open up with you and perhaps share you know, insights and some of their challenges. Uh, perhaps you'd add some more criteria to that, but uh, talk a bit about how you might value those things in terms of credibility, access, and trust, and what other leaders might learn from, from those examples. Okay, so I started doing interviewing uh, when I became the president of the Economic Club of Washington. I was supposed to get business people to come in and speak, but mostly I found they were boring speakers. So I said, maybe I could liven up by doing interviewing, and I got reasonably good at it. And then Bloomberg came along and said, why don't you do it on TV for us? And I did. And so my te technique is not that you know, complicated. Basically, I prepare a lot. I read everything I can possibly read about the person or anything that they have written. Then I uh, also write out the questions in advance and tend to memorize them. I don't like to use written notes because it, it, it makes it less of a conversation and more of an interview. I also try to inter intersperse humor from time to time to lighten the load a bit. And I also tend to interview people that I know, which makes it more comfortable for them because they already know me. And so I also tell people I'm not a journalist. My job is not to do a gotcha and, and embarrass you. I'm trying to have a conversation, mostly to get people to say how they became a leader and what they would recommend to other people who want to be a leader and follow in their path. So that's kind of how I've done it. David, I'm sure you cannot tell it, but I have tried to model this podcast interviewing style off of yours. I read everything I can about the author or about the guest, including their book and anything else. I don't have written questions, and I also try to disperse some, some humor. So wish me luck on, at the end of well, this. Well, you're doing a very good job. You're obviously experienced. Well, that's debatable, but thank you for your generosity. Um, I'd like to touch on some of the people that we're going to discuss today, but let me just give the audience a kind of a, a, a broad brush of the people who you did spotlight, people like Jeff Bezos and um, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Phil Knight, Marilyn Houston, uh, Melinda Gates. There's some great names in here. You know, General Petraeus, General Powell, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Silver, um, Anthony Fauci, Yo-Yo Ma, Lauren Michaels. I mean, it's a really broad group. I'm going to ask you to talk a bit about today Tim Cook, um, Christine Lagarde, Oprah Winfrey, Eric Schmidt, and maybe Dame, Jamie Diamond. Okay. How did you curate the list? Who did you leave off? How was the, what was the criteria for inclusion? Well, I had about 100 potential people. And then um, if you know anything about the publishing world, the publisher tells you, you know, or the editor said, why don't you use this one or that one? So yeah. we, you know, they, they did give me a lot of good advice. I also wanted to have some diversity. I didn't want all white males who were my age. So I wanted some people that were, um, you know, not just all white males. I also wanted people in different industries who'd done different things, let's say culture, military, politics. So that was how I did it. I, I have a lot of other good interviews I just didn't include in this book. And I um, felt bad when I sent copies of the book to friends of mine who I interviewed but didn't put them in the book. I was wondering <laughs> whether they would send the book back to me saying, how come I'm not in the book? Well, it begs for a volume two, so stand by. Okay, let's get started. I actually found the interview with Oprah Winfrey to be absolutely compelling because I learned some things from your interview that I did not know about her, and I feel like I'm pretty well schooled on Oprah. Her partner, Stedman Graham, and I are good friends, and he's been on this program. Right. But I learned a couple of things about Oprah, and one is the attention to listening that she gives, that her interview style is to really listen intently to what the other person is saying. What did you learn from Oprah? Well, Oprah is, I did learn that her, when her birth name was actually Orpah, but it was spelled wrong on the birth certificate, so That's she right. became Oprah. It was supposed to be Orpah. Yeah. But in yeah. any event, um, Oprah say, says she's not a great interviewer, she's a great listener. And yeah, when you think about it, that's what interviewing is about. If you just listen to somebody 
and don't pay attention to what they're saying. You just go on to the next question you have in your mind. You're not a good listener. So she also has an enormous amount of empathy. And, uh, and I think being a good interviewer requires listening and empathy. And also she can connect with her audience. But I think one of the most important things about her is that she really does care about uh, other people. And you can sense that in the interviews, it's not fake. When you really care about the person you're interviewing and you have the empathy she does uh, exhibit, it's great. I, I said to her that in the interview, as you may remember it from reading it, I said, look, you don't need to be uh, experienced to be president of the United States. Obviously, Donald Trump just got elected. He wasn't experienced. Why don't you consider running for president? And she played with it for a while. But in the end, I think she concluded that being Oprah is better than being president. And she's right. I loved that line. David, speaking of that, I'm sure you've had many, many Americans come to you and ask you uh, to do the same. How seriously have you ever considered running for that office? Well, I, uh, I'm too young. I'm only 71. <laughs> and I think at that age, you just don't have the experience that you need. You need to be a lot older. But maybe when I'm older, I'll consider it. But for the time being, I think I figured out what my best path in life is. And it's probably not to be a, a candidate. Uh, because um, I, I probably don't have all the skill set there. And again, I'm, I'm pretty young and inexperienced. You know, I'm not a journalist either, but I think you just dodged that question. Let me talk about the Oprah Winfrey interview a little bit more. She also shared a point where she talked about, don't be ashamed of who you are. She said that, you know, she was raised in abject poverty, didn't get much poorer than Oprah. And she, you asked her what her, um, I think, most proud accomplishment was. I think she said the school that she is obviously underwriting and launching in Africa. And she mentioned that there was a young girl at that school when Oprah said, what binds you all is that you're poor. And one of the girls kind of objected to being poor. And Oprah said, well, if you're not poor, you shouldn't be here because I'm helping poor girls become right. educated. You yourself were raised from humble means. What would you add to that concept about being just proud of who you are regardless of your circumstance? When you grow up in a lower income family, uh, you don't say, I got to be rich or I won't be happy. You take, you accept the circumstances you find yourself on and you make the best of it. I did not aspire to make a lot of money. I honestly didn't really care about money when I was growing up. It just was not on my radar screen. I got lucky later in life. You could argue lucky and made a lot of money. Most of the people that have made a lot of money in life did not try to make a lot of money. They wanted to prove their concept. Bill Gates wanted to prove that his software could work. Steve Jobs wanted to prove that personal computers could work. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos wanted to prove you could sell things over the internet. Making money is really, really secondary. It's proving your idea, showing you can do something you thought you could do that nobody else thought you could do. That's really the key. Making money is much, much less significant than the pleasure of showing somebody you could do something that people didn't think you could do. David, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. I want to go to Jamie Dimon next, but you write a whole chapter about Jeff Bezos. It's quite compelling from the early years. From your early interactions with Jeff Bezos, what have you learned from him in terms of his leadership qualities that our listeners could integrate into their own styles, regardless of what level they're in or what industry they're in? Well, Jeff said three things in our, my interview with him that were kind of amazing. I've interviewed him several times, but this one that I put in the book was one where he said he, he doesn't make any decisions before 10 a.m., any big decisions after 5 p.m., and he also gets eight hours of sleep every night. And I realized if I'd only followed those things, I could have been more successful in life because I haven't been getting eight hours of sleep. I'm making decisions early in the morning. But he says he likes to putter around the house before 10 and not make any big decisions. So I, he has a different leadership style. But to be very serious, he's obviously driven. And what he does is he focuses on the right thing. When he was building his company, people said, you're not, made, you're not earning any money. You don't have any earnings. Your company's not going to make it. He didn't care about earnings. He cared about building the brand and the market share. 
So like many great business leaders, he focused on what he believed was the right thing. And the right thing he said was to build customer loyalty. And he's always about customers first, customers first. And he was ahead of Wall Street. Wall Street didn't think he really knew what he was doing, but he did. And a really, really smart person. He now has the, the wealth of, of more than anybody else in the world. And he's already begun to get involved in philanthropy. And I suspect he'll do a lot more in it, but he's only uh, in his early fifties really. And he's got a long way to go. And the company, as you know, is I think the second most valuable company in the world. Staggering that he did this in 25 years or so. Reminds me a lot of the interview with Tim Cook, which we'll talk about, which is that both of those leaders have something in common, which is they're not focused on the short term. They're not driven by the, the drive of analysts and Wall Street and investors for the short term quarterly profits. They're not ignorant to that, but they're look, really looking at developing sustainable business that grows substantial over time. We'll come to that when we speak okay. to Tim Cook. Let's talk about Jamie Dimon. I'm chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, where I bank for 20 years. I'm a small contributor to one of the hamlets that his bank is in. Uh, you know, I followed Jamie's career, as have I'm sure you know anybody who has bank has money at their bank. I, I found his um, his interview to be uh, in a little bit of, in stark comparison to some of the others in that he is he's fiercely focused, but he also is focused on all of his energy on one thing, right? He's, he says he's not a tennis player, he's not a snow skier, whatever he says, that he wants to give his all to building J.P. Morgan. And he's actually probably pretty good at resisting distractions and temptations. What did you learn from Jamie Dimon? Well, Jamie is somebody I've known for a long time. When he was fired as the president of Citicorp, I went and said, why don't you join private equity? And actually Jeff Bezos was trying to get him to join Amazon, but he knew that he was a banker and that's what he wanted to do. When a banking job came along, he took it. And what Jamie would like to do is be president of the United States. Um, he said that, uh, but he realizes he's not going to be president of the United States. As he's a Democrat, he's not going to be nominated as the head of J.P. Morgan as a Democratic nominee. So he said his contribution to the country is running a bank and running it well. And he recognizes that's what he does well, and that's what he really enjoys. So he really is a, a very smart person, very attentive to detail, and he basically has made his lot in life as a great banker. I think the best banker since Mr. J.P. Morgan himself. So he recognizes that he could do other things, would like to do other things, but in the end, you have to be realistic about what's opportunity, what opportunity you really have in front of you, and he thinks the opportunity he has is to be a great banker, not to be a politician. Hey, maybe David, a quick digression. I don't know that you're an economist, although I think you have a lot of insight into what the global uh, economy looks like. You know, we're taping this in mid-September. We're gonna air it in just a few weeks. We're in the middle of the pandemic still. In some cases in the country, it's raising. Others, it's lowering. It's on the rise here right now in Utah, quite concerning. Uh, what are your concerns or what are you encouraged about in terms of what the economy might look like post-pandemic? There are three things I want people to focus on relating to that subject. Number one, we, we have what I call the COVID uh, crater, which is to say that People who are in technology companies, financial services, healthcare, things like that, they're going to do quite fine. People that are in restaurants or, or small companies or small businesses or in hotels, they're not going to do so fine. The travel business is not going to do so fine. A lot of people who are not well-educated or can't transform themselves are going to fall into the crater, which is to say they're going to be in, in a greater problem than they were before the, the uh, COVID came along. And we're going to have a greater and greater income inequality problem than we had before and a greater, greater problem of lack of social mobility. That's number one, which is how do we deal with this big problem? Because some people are doing better and some people can do much, much worse. Secondly, we borrowed enormous amounts of money to get us through this pandemic. We haven't gotten through it yet, but the federal government now has $27 trillion of debt. 
somebody's going to have to pay that off at some point. And I do worry that at some point people will wake up and realize we can't afford the life we now have. Right now, for example, our budget in the United States, if 50% is borrowed and 50% comes from taxes, we probably can't borrow 50% of our money all the time to keep the government going. So at some point, there's going to be a, a, a problem, a reckoning there. And I also worry uh, about the, the, the slowdown in the economy that probably will occur after the election. I suspect that when the next, when whoever is elected president, we're going to have to deal with the need for more federal revenue, which probably means more taxes, despite what people say. I think we'll have to cut some social benefits, despite what people say now. And I also think that we have to recognize that, that the technology world is booming, but that's what's fueling the stock market. Many of the companies in the, in the, in the indexes are technology companies, but if you took out the technology companies, the stock market isn't doing that well. And I suspect the underlying economy isn't doing that well. It's been masked a bit by the technology companies. So I think it's going to take another two years or so before we get back to where we were before the pandemic came. David, you're quite complimentary of Dr. Anthony Fauci in the book. And again, I didn't mean to highlight him. What did you learn from him that you'd like to share? Again, this book was written a bit pre-pandemic, not entirely. But what did you learn from Dr. Fauci that the that the listeners and viewers today should take seriously about protecting not just their, their family's um, health, but also their own finances. I interviewed him before the pandemic, then I went back after the pandemic and did a second interview, which is in the book. And I greatly admire him. I've known him for a long time. I actually interviewed him yesterday on another matter. And basically what he told me yesterday when I asked him, I said, did you ever consider quitting because of the political abuse you've had and, and some of the challenges that we all know he's had to face? And he said, no. What I care about is helping American people and their health. I'm an infectious disease doctor, and I don't want to quit and walk away from this problem. It's the greatest problem we've ever had in terms of health. And so, uh, no, he never considered quitting. I think he deserves a great award for his courage and sticking up for what he believes in. And I think his view would be that it's going to take probably another year before we're really back to something normal. We're probably not going to have vaccines readily available until probably the end of 2021. We might get some available maybe at the end of 2020, but for the bulk of the population, sometime in 2021 is probably before they're going to get it. And you need two shots, so you have to, it's going to take a while to get it done. Make sure you share with Dr. Fauci that every sane American is taking their advice from him, and we appreciate his selfless service to our country. Let's talk about Eric Schmidt. Um, I don't know him personally, but because we're based in Salt Lake City, he was several decades ago the CEO of Novell that was headquartered just south here in Provo for some time. Uh, I found Eric's story to be quite compelling because as an engineer, as a tech guy, when he joined Google, he kind of had his world rocked. Would you share this story about when Eric Schmidt was uh, hired to be the CEO of Google and there was an incident in his actual office? Will you kind of recreate that story? Yes, he's a CEO of Google, but Google is a loose kind of company. People were encouraged to bring their bicycles, maybe a pet, maybe their laundry, other things into the office. And of course, they ate there as well. They gave him free meals. One time he had to go away for a while. He came back and somebody's in his office. And he asked this person, like, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I asked my boss and if I could use your office when you were gone. And he said, yes. So I moved in and I kind of liked the office. So I think I'm going to stay here. So Eric didn't really know he did want to So he let the guy stay there, became friendly with him and actually learned something from him. So he showed that you have to adapt your culture. And the culture at Google was kind of a very uh, free forming, free flowing one. And, and he basically shared an office with a very, very, very low level person, but he actually learned something from the person. David, what can you tell us about Google? Uh, there's so many concerns about privacy and internet search and, and all of that. Anything right. as an investor in a broad range of companies that you would, would say you're encouraged by the future of high tech, 
what should people be concerned about, the average person at home like me? What would you say about Google? I interviewed and thought in the book on the other day for my TV show, Ruth Peratt, who is the CFO now of Google. And I asked her, let's suppose I said to you, um, I just Googled some things yesterday. Could you go back to your office and find out what I Googled? And she swore that that was not possible. But obviously we know if the government of the United States comes in and wants to know what you Google, the government can get that. So it's available. So you do have to worry about privacy because whatever you Google is available somewhere and some government agency can come along. And uh, so be careful what you Google is, I guess, one of the things I would say. Um, secondly, I think Google is an interesting company when you think about it. Search engines were not novel. There had been dozens of them. That's when Google had a hard time getting money from the, for the beginning. In fact, Google was not doing so well at the beginning. The venture capitalists said, we want the money back. That rarely happens where you go to the people you gave the money to and said, you haven't hired the CEO we want. You haven't really done much. We want the money back. The Google guys didn't give it back. And obviously the rest is history because their search engine turned out to be better than every other search engine. Let's move to Tim Cook. Uh, I found this interview probably to be the most fascinating because he reminds me a lot of what Jim Collins, who is a good friend of our companies and our chairman, right. Bob Whitman, writes about as a level five leader in good to great, right? Just about the humility and um, the quiet kind of um, leader who's not loud and charismatic and such. I, I found the beginning of the interview to be compelling because you rattled off a bunch of statistics about the market cap and the growth with um, Apple. And I think Tim's response was what? Well, he didn't care about that because he doesn't focus on that. He doesn't look at the stock price. He's looking at the longer term kinds of issues. I think the interesting thing with Tim Cook is this. Tim Cook succeeded a legend, one of the most uh, charismatic and, and successful business people of our lifetime has been uh, Steve Jobs. Look what he built, now the most valuable company in the world. Well, when Tim Cook took over, people said he's too low key, he's not charismatic, he'll never be there very long. I began to think at the beginning when I read about his taking over, I didn't know him that well then, that Tim Cook was going to be like the basketball coach that succeeded John Wooden at UCLA. <laughs> John Wooden won 12 national titles, and then the guy that succeeded him lasted for two years because succeeding a legend is difficult. I didn't think Tim Cook would survive. It turns out that when Steve Jobs died, he was the market cap of the company was roughly 350 billion. Today, it's roughly two trillion. So look what it, what's happened. It's an incredible story. And Tim Cook has done it by being the opposite of Steve Jobs. Low key, work as a team, not be the star, uh, rely on your technology people and build the, uh, the infrastructure to make sure the company is, is working well. And you don't read about Tim Cook that much as the superstar because he doesn't want to be known as a superstar. He's very low key. And as we know, he identified himself as being gay uh, a number of years ago while he was a CEO. He thought that was the right thing to do. And to him, uh, the human rights issues of that uh, matter are very important to him. So he's really dedicated himself to making certain that everybody has the kind of human rights that he thinks is, is, is appropriate for an American to have and all people to have. And he's really a, a dedicated, low-key person who doesn't look for headlines, doesn't look for glory, just wants to make Apple a better company. David, to that point, as one of the world's most renowned investors, because you have, of course, your hands uh, in, 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 I'm guessing, thousands of different enterprises from upstart to more mature growth, what do you look for when it comes to the leadership capabilities, character, and competence? When you're considering an investment in a new company, and you're investing also in the leadership. I'm guessing you're often frequently thinking about the leadership. What qualities do you look for? In the buyout world, uh, as opposed to the venture capital world, in the buyout world, I think the price is the most important issue and the CEO is maybe the, is tied up, tied with that, it may be second most important. 
if you buy something too high, it's hard to turn it around. But you need to make sure you've got the right CEO. And in the buyout world, about 50% of the CEOs there at the beginning of a buyout are not there at the end because they're not the right personality. What you're really looking for is somebody who's dedicated, who wants to make this work, who is pretty selfless, who is not worried about his or her own compensation or his or her own glory, that can work with a team, knows how to communicate, knows how to lead by example, has failed in life and therefore knows what it's like to fail, has some humility. That's what I think we're really looking for when we look for a good CEO. Well said. Let's talk about Christine Lagarde. Now, she may not be a household name in the U.S. because most of her career has been um, in Europe. She was uh, a European lawyer. She became one of the lead partners at Baker McKinsey in Chicago. She then led the IMF after, I think, a fairly scandalous departure from then the, the leader of that. She became, uh, I think, in the middle there somewhere, the French finance minister, and then now is, I think, the... Um, president of the European Bank. This is one of the most successful female leaders probably in my generation. Your, your, your interview talks a lot about the impact that female leadership has on the success of culture and finances in organizations. What's the most piercing insight you took away from Christine Lagarde? Well, let me just preface it by saying today, there at the Fortune 500, there are only 38 women who are running Fortune 500 companies. So still today, even though we've made many advances, we're still way behind where I think we probably should be. And in terms of Christine Lagarde, she would say that she was always underestimated. Yeah. As a lawyer, as the head of the law firm, as a finance minister, as, um, as a trade minister, uh, she was always underestimated. And that helped her because people didn't take her as seriously. She could prove how smart she was. And ultimately, she did a spectacular job at the IMF and really turned that organization around, which, as you said, was... Uh, was in disarray because of the scandal of her predecessor. Now she's running the European Central Bank, and there too she's had enormous impact in getting the European countries to come together on a debt relief package. So I think she's quite an impressive person. What's the key to her success? Well, um, I humorously said at her farewell dinner that it was synchronized swimming. She was on the French <laughs> yeah. national synchronized swimming team, and I said to everybody at their farewell dinner, please practice synchronized swimming, because all of you can then turn out to be a great leader like Christine Lagarde. David, what's your biggest professional mistake? Well, I guess uh, I wish I had started Carlisle before. So I would be, uh, you know, I, I wasted a number of years practicing law when I wasn't that good at it. Uh, probably in, within Carlisle, we've made a number of investment mistakes that, that we wish we hadn't made. My personal biggest mistake was probably uh, when my now son-in-law told me about um, Facebook, uh, his classmate at Harvard was starting it. He wanted me to invest. I said, that's not going anywhere. That company will never be anything but a dating service for college students. That was a big mistake, probably about a $20 billion mistake. David, if you were giving advice to anybody who's in, entering a leadership role for the first time, whether it be a very junior role or mid-role, what advice from your you know, storied 50-plus year career, right. uh, the indisputable financial success you've had, and the access and credibility you have from writing this book, How to Lead, what, what leadership advice would you give to a first-time leader? My advice is don't be afraid to fail. You've got to take chances. Failure is a good thing. It'll help you become a better leader. Focus, make yourself an expert in one or two things. Focus, focus for a while and surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Surround yourself with people you're willing to listen to. Learn how to communicate with your followers. Learn how to write well, learn how to speak well, learn how to lead by example. And also make sure you're doing the ethically right thing. When I started practicing law, the head of the firm came in and said, the only thing you carry around with you in your life is your reputation. Yeah. That's with you your whole life. 
and it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation and five minutes to destroy it. So I always remind people, be ethically clean with whatever you do. Do not take the path of least resistance. And if you're successful as a leader of a company, give back to society. Because remember, the point of life is not to make money just for the purpose of accumulating it and getting higher on the Forbes 400 list. It's to do something useful with the money, give it away in a useful, productive way to make society better. David, the book is extraordinary. How to lead wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers on my recommendation. I think we have half of Franklin Covey listening to it on audio tape right now and reading it in print. As we end, would you remind our listeners and viewers about your own interview program? It's, I think, seen on Bloomberg and PBS, Peer to Peer. Talk a bit about your own interview series. I have a program called Peer to Peer on Bloomberg where I interview leading people and basically for... Uh, about a half an hour, I go through leadership. I also have a program on PBS that called, it's History with David Rubenstein, where I interview great historians, talk about American history. And uh, those are two programs that I currently have. David, send us off. Last question. From all the people you interviewed in the book, and perhaps some of those that you did but didn't include, what's the one piece of insight that has changed who you are as a leader, an investor, a philanthropist, as a person? Humility. Because you've lacked it? Well, I re recognize how many other people are so talented out there that I think when you're dealing with all these talented people, you tend to be even more humble. But I think one of the leadership qualities I most admire is people who are humble because they realize they had a lot of luck along the way, as I did. And I think the people that I most admire as leaders are ones who are modest and self-effacing. I cannot imagine Abraham Lincoln after the, world, after the uh, Civil War, sitting down and saying, you know, I won the, I won the Civil War by myself. I didn't really need anybody. Um, I can't imagine him saying that. I just think he was a modest, self-effacing kind of person. Now, I never interviewed Napoleon. Uh, he might not have been modest. Maybe he was a great leader. But the people I really admire are people that are humble because they know there was a lot of luck involved and they had to get the support of a lot of other people to do what they did. David, that you would take time to join us today on our podcast is, I think, a testament to you showing that humility. We're graciously appreciative. Um, thank you for the book. I'm sure it's going to continue to do very well. And perhaps when there's volume two from the shaming from all of your friends that weren't in the book, we'll have you back on. Thank you again for your time, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for joining us. This is a clear highlight for me that um, David Rubenstein would come on the program after we have modeled our very program based on his peer-to-peer -peer interview is a highlight for the production crew and myself. Thank you, David, again. And we'll see you back here next week for a new guest on leadership. Mm -hmm.